I'm really excited about, uh, about the sermon today, and I, I hope that you are too, because today we get to talk about not only one of my favorite things, the ministry of the word, in other words, the, our proclamation of the gospel in teaching and preaching and evangelism. Not only do we get to talk about that, but we get to talk about the intersection between the ministry of the word and rejection. When one studies Luke chapter 4, you cannot help but think about and reflect on rejection. And that's, that's exactly what I did this week. I thought about the rejection that I've experienced on account of God's word. I thought about the stories that you have told me uh, about the rejection that you've experienced because of it. And the question that kept popping up in my mind over and over again and that I wrestled with is this. Are we actually scared of rejection? Is that a legitimate fear? And I kind of came down on saying it's not. And here's what I mean. In every aspect of our lives, use our lives as an example. In every aspect of our lives, there are decisions that we make, stuff that we say, stances that we take, that differ invariably from maybe your wife or your husband or the people down the street, anybody else in the world. And when you have a difference of opinion, especially in a world that is, has become so you against me, that statement or stance or whatever it is, is, tends to be rejected by somebody who doesn't hold it. Every single person in here takes some sort of a stance on politics and policies. Every single person over the last two years or more has been engaged in some sort of debate over vaccines or not, or boosters or not, or masks or not, or gathering or not. You take stances on schools and sports and everything else. And you get rejected for it every single day. And you don't care. Not a lick. When you care about something enough, you are willing to take a stand on it, and you're willing to speak your mind to say your piece, regardless of what somebody else thinks, regardless of any rejection that you would face. But the minute the minute it comes to some sort of meaningful engagement in the ministry of the word. A ministry which, by the way, is not just my responsibility. All of you, through the blood of Jesus and the faith that God has planted in your hearts, are, so to speak, ministers of the gospel. You've all been given that responsibility. So the minute that it comes to meaningful engagement in the ministry of the word, the proclamation of law and gospel, of death and life, of sin and grace, all of a sudden, Christians, including me and you, all of a sudden say, well, we fear rejection. Do we, though? Fear of rejection is one of the biggest reasons that people give for not wanting to do something like evangelism or talk to their neighbors about the word of God. But do we actually fear rejection? I, I don't think so. I think instead what we fear is what comes as a result of rejection. Maybe for you, the thing that you fear is what your, your friends or your neighbors or even your family members will think when you speak the word of God into their lives and, and apply it to their hearts. Maybe the thing you fear, especially with the way that the climate in our country has turned against Christianity, the thing you fear is some form of persecution, be it overt or covert. When we are called to speak the truth of God's word to a world that not only pushes back against the notion of any sort of truth, but has been so warped and twisted by postmodern thinking that it eschews the very notion of absolute truth, well, of course that's going to face rejection. Of course you're going to be rejected for that. 
all of us have a thing. A thing that drives our fear for not wanting to be meaningfully engaged in the ministry of the word. Maybe it's some of the stuff that I've said. Maybe it's something completely different. And honestly, that's between you and God to sort out, not for me and you to sort out. But at some point, we have to deal with this truth that Jesus presents us in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus, the, the word made flesh. He presents us two really important things that he wants us to see this morning. Through his preaching in Nazareth, Jesus explains to us that, or shows us more, that when it comes to the ministry of the word, that rejection is the rule, not the exception. And the other thing that he shows us is what we are to do when we are actually faced with rejection on account of the word. So in Luke 4, Jesus has a homecoming, right? He goes back to Nazareth where his mother Mary and stepfather Joseph and step-siblings still live. And while he's there, the Sabbath comes, and as was his custom, he goes into the synagogue, the place where God's people there gather to worship, and he stands up to read. The, the synagogue attendant, he hands him a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and Jesus unrolls it to the point where he gets to Isaiah chapter 61. He reads, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to, to proclaim freedom for the captive, the restoration of sight for the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolls up the scroll. He hands it back to the attendant and sit down, and the eyes of everyone in that synagogue are on him. Today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Now understand what it is that Jesus is, is telling these people. That this prophecy from Isaiah 61 that talks about what the Messiah would be and do, that he would be a proclaimer of good news, he would be a liberator, a chain breaker, that this prophecy that, that these people and their ancestors had clung to for centuries, it is right now at this very moment being fulfilled in the one standing before them that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and that these people in Nazareth are now in the Messianic age, that the kingdom of God and their salvation and their forgiveness of sins and rescue from death and, and liberty from Satan, it is all found in the one Jesus. What good news was preached that day in Nazareth? And those people, the Nazarenes who are in the synagogue that day, they know it. Because what is their initial reaction to that word? They marvel at it. They speak well about it and about Jesus. They, they can't believe the gracious words that are coming out of his mouth. You see, when it comes to the word of God, people, people don't always reject you when you bring them good news, right? Good news is, is a hard thing to find today. And so when somebody brings you good news, it's not likely that you're going to reject it. When you bring somebody else good news, it's not likely that they're going to reject it. That's what happened in Nazareth? Jesus brings them good news, and they don't reject it, at least not initially. The thing is, though, when it comes to the ministry of the word, the word isn't just all good news. Scripture, the word of God, contains two very distinct teachings. Both teachings must be taught in their truth and purity, must both must be taught without mixing each other, both, both must be taught in their fullness. These two teachings are both the gospel and the law. And the law 
The law is the thing that people tend to run from. The law is the thing that people tend to object. The law is the thing that people tend to reject. It's why people often reject you. It's what happened in Nazareth, too. These people, they like what Jesus has to say initially until they really start considering the source, right? They look at the man standing before him, the one who claims to be the Messiah. And they say, isn't, isn't this Joseph's son? By extension, what they're saying is, isn't this the carpenter's boy, the one who is himself a carpenter by trade? Isn't this the one that we saw grow up running through our streets? How can he have anything to do with messiahship? How can he have anything to do with speaking anything powerfully that could transform our lives? And, and so these Nazarenes, they reject him. Unless, unless they see a miracle. Jesus knows that this is what they want. He reads their hearts and he says, it's, it's doubtless that you're going to quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do the very things in Capernaum that you've been doing in Capernaum here, the, the healing of the sick and the raising of a girl from the dead. Do these here and then, and then we'll believe you. So here you have Jesus standing there in Nazareth. The prophet, who was foreshadowed by all of these other prophets, carrying out his prophetic ministry, his prophetic duty, the ministry of the word. Here you have Jesus doing all of this and standing face to face with rejection. And please, please notice what Jesus does not do in the face of rejection. Jesus does not backpedal. Jesus does not soften his message, which, by the way, is a temptation for everyone who speaks the word of God to to soften the things that you say, to make it a little more appealing, a little less harsh. Jesus does none of that. Instead, what Jesus does is leave us an example of what we're to do when we're faced with rejection. He doubles down, doesn't he? He brings the full weight of the law to bear on these people's hearts. No prophet is welcome in his hometown. Nazarenes, you are acting like Israel of old. You want proof of that? Look at how your ancestors treated the prophets of God. When your ancestors, Israel, rejected Elijah the prophet, he didn't go back to them. Instead, what he did was go to Sidon and ministered to a woman in Zarephath. Nazarenes, when your ancestors rejected Elisha the prophet, he didn't go back to them. Instead, what he did, he went to Syria, went to Naaman, ministered to him healed him of his leprosy. You are living proof that the, that the pattern of the struggle of, of God's people with the truth of God's word and its constant rejection still holds true. And so like Elijah and like Elisha, I'm going to reject you and I'm going to go to other places and I'm going to preach the word to people who will listen, to people who will accept it, to people who will live it. Their reaction? complete and total outrage. Luke says wrath. They were so filled with wrath that, that they drove Jesus out of the synagogue. They drove Jesus out of the city. They drove him to the brink of the cliff that this town was built on in order to throw them off. But in a great irony, what does Jesus do? He gives them the very thing that they had asked for in the first place, doesn't he? By a miracle, he walks right through them to show them that he is truly who he said he is and that their threats to kill him are or are powerless. Rejection, when it comes to the ministry of the word, is the rule, not the exception. 
Plain and simple, that when you speak the word of God to a world turned inward, a world twisted and warped by sin, rejection is going to come. That's the truth. But this morning, I want to I pause on that and, and dig more deeply into why people reject the word of God. I want to dig more than just the surface level answer of sin. Because we could just say, well, sin is the reason why people reject and then move on. But, but dig more deeply than that. People don't reject the word of God because it, it lays an absolute, a claim on absolute truth. People don't outrightly reject it because of that. In fact, when the truth of God's word lines up with, with what somebody likes or what somebody, an idea that somebody holds to, they're very quick to point it out, very quick to cling to it even. Take, take for example, when Jesus is summarizing the law. What does he say about the second table of the law? It can be summed up in this phrase, love your neighbor. Okay? Even the most godless pagans in this world understand that love is important and that love, loving each other more and not being divisive and not hating each other would actually lead to a better and more peaceful society. So people don't outrightly reject the word of God when it tells them something good, when it tells them, hey, love is a solution to a lot of issues. But you've got to remember that that the word of God is not just good news. The word of God is not just the gospel. The word of God also contains the law. And both of these things must be maintained. Both of these things must be preached in all of its purity and truth. Because without, without one or the other, both fail to do their work. If you don't preach the law, the gospel is utterly meaningless. It ends up being nothing other than good news or empty platitudes. Without preaching the gospel, the law is nothing other than a conviction of condemnation from which you cannot escape, or it is a list of laws by which you think you can appease God, and that's it. Both are necessary. Both are needed. But the law, the law is what people hate. Because the law tells the truth. It tells the truth about who we are, about who the world is, and it's a truth that that deep down, people know, but they don't want to admit is true. And that's what offends them. An offense. Offense is what leads people to reject. Offense is what leads to rejection. So what is that, that truth that the law proclaims that people run from? We're sinners. We are held captive by Satan in the bondage of death. We are oppressed by Satan on every side. And that's what people hate. They hate to be told that there is nothing inherently good in them. They hate to be told that they are basically bad. That's what leads people to reject the word of God. And, and if you want actual proof of that, you need look no further than your own hearts, right? Because how often are, are our own hearts accepting of Jesus' words to us when they're the gospel. When he speaks that sweet comfort of, of forgiveness and grace to our hearts, but the minute, the minute that Jesus calls uh, to, a t to our attention the sinful way we've been living or speaking or thinking, and our consciences are pricked by the law bearing down on our hearts, how quickly are we to, to take offense at that and reject Jesus? How quickly are we to say, Jesus, who are you to speak like that to me? How dare you? This is what has happened throughout history. And if this is what happens in our own hearts, our own hearts where Jesus and his word should be a welcome guest, then why should we expect anything different from the world who doesn't know Jesus? Why should we expect anything other than rejection? The answer is 
we shouldn't. And I think we're familiar with that. And even though the world is so quick to reject the word of God, the people that we encounter are so quick to reject the word of God, my prayer in every interaction where I have encountered rejection is this, and I hope that this is your prayer too, that through my witness, through my speaking of God's word to these people, that God would lead them to see that these words, no matter how harsh or convicting or how much they offend, they serve a purpose. They serve a divine purpose and an eternal purpose. Because without the law, showing you who you truly are, the gospel cannot show you what you have been made in Christ. Without the law, part of God's word, without the law showing you that you are a sinner, you have no concept of the freedom that the gospel proclaims. Without the law showing you that you are poor. Or it's, it's only when the law has shown that you're poor that, that the gospel can show you that you've been made rich in Jesus. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Unless the law shows you that you are captive by sin and death and oppressed by Satan, the gospel cannot set you free and show you that all of those shackles and chains are shattered and gone. This is the ministry of the word, the proclamation of law and gospel, of sin and grace, of death and life, a ministry that brings rejection. And I know that we would all wish that, that this could take place without anybody ever rejecting us, without, with people only ever accepting the, the words that we bring them. I, I have that prayer and that wish from time to time too, but I want you to consider this. If it were not for rejection, you would not have the gospel. Maybe put it in a more positive way. It's because of rejection that the gospel is now a treasure which you possess. It was Jesus' rejection that led him to the cross and ultimately uh, led his father to reject him unto death that led to your freedom, to your release, to those chains of sin and death being broken, to you having forgiveness and the love of the father. Throughout history, people have constantly rejected the word of God, and God has used that rejection to continue to spread that to other people and to other places. When Israel rejected Elijah, he went to Sidon. When Israel rejected Elisha, he went to Syria. When the Nazarenes rejected Jesus, he went to other cities and to other places to preach the gospel where it would be accepted as truth and life and upend somebody else's eternity. Throughout history, people have constantly rejected the word of God and God uses that rejection to continue to spread the gospel because rejection is the exception or the rule, not the exception. It is a feature of the word of God, not a flaw. Right? Just all you have to do, go, go home today and look at a map of the spread of Christianity, the spread of the word of God from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven until today. Do you know what you'll see? You'll see constant rejection and constant spread. Jerusalem, the epicenter of Christianity, rejected the word of God. And what did Jesus do? Sent his apostles north, sent them west. Throughout history, the word of God has constantly moved north and west until it reached your parents and your home and your hearts, all through rejection. If it were not for rejection, you would not have the gospel. And now, 
And now, do you know what your God says to you? Do you know what Jesus, the word of God, says to you? It's your turn to be rejected. I've taken this word, and I've made you to be a vessel that bears rejection. I've made you to be a vessel that carries the eternal gospel to the world. That's your job. Your job isn't to worry about the results, whether it is accepted or whether it's rejected. That's my job. Your job, just carry it as boldly as you can to as many people as you can. Now, it would be nice if God gave us the odds for how this would all work. But imagine if God did that. If God gave us the odds for, for acceptance versus rejection. And let's just say those odds were 15 to 1. For every 15 people who reject the gospel, one person accepts it. Would that make you more bold in sharing the gospel? Knowing that out there, there's one person. Out of every 15 that you talk to, there's one person who would accept it. I'd argue that it would, and that all of us would carry around a, a, a little thing on our phones that would have a tally with every rejection that we face, anxiously waiting for that one acceptance that we would get. It would be nice, but God doesn't work on a, according to odds. Instead, what God does is give you something far greater than the odds that, of how this will work. He gives you, gives you promises. This is what your God promises you. The word that he has given you to deliver is absolute truth that proves itself to be true over and over and over again. Ensure that there will be people in the world who say, you have your truth and I have my truth and these truths can just keep coexisting forever. But, but in the end, only one truth and one truth alone will stand. Only one truth has the power to transform people's hearts and lives. And that's the truth of God's word, the truth that your God has placed in your hands to take to other people. It's promise number one. Promise number two, that every time that you speak the word of God, it has an effect. Plain and simple. Every time that you speak the word, God works through it to accomplish what he wants. This is Isaiah 55. The word of my mouth will not return to me empty but will we'll accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. The efficacy of the word of God does not rely on your eloquence of speech or your depth of knowledge or, or your personality or anything else, which by the way, those are again, common objections to why people think that they can't do uh, meaningful ministry. The efficacy of the word of God relies solely on its source, on God, who is bigger than you, who is stronger than you, the God who makes you abundant promises, the God who promises to be with you every step of the way, the God who spoke this world and his word into existence. That's, that's what the efficacy of the word relies on. Not on you, not on how well you speak, but on him. And that God that God says, every time you speak my word, it has an effect. It accomplishes the purpose that I desire. And so sometimes the words that you speak, the purpose for which God sends those words through you to somebody else is for rejection and hardening somebody in their sin and unbelief. Think of Pharaoh. Think of the, the Nazarenes who drove Jesus out because their pride was, was, was hurt. And they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. That rejection... Not only was it God's purpose, but it led Jesus to other cities and to other towns to preach the good news to other people. So if these are all things that we know and things that we believe, 
that truth comes from God, that the efficacy of that truth relies on God, that God has placed this truth in our hands, that rejection when it comes to proclaiming this truth is the rule, not the exception, and that God will use this truth to save somebody. If we know and believe all of these things, then what's the only thing left for us to do? It's to go. To go into the world and speak this truth, the word of God, to as many people as we possibly can. It's to go into the world with the prayer that the apostles prayed. Lord, consider the threats of the world and continue to enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. God, grant that for all of your people. Amen.